I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. On this episode of Q&A, you'll meet two millennial members of Congress's freshman class, Republican Representative-elect Kat Kamick of North Central Florida, who describes herself as a constitutional conservative. At 32, she's the youngest Republican woman elected to Congress in history. And Representative-elect Sarah Jacobs of San Diego. At 31, she's the youngest Democratic woman in the 117th Congress. She won her seat resoundingly in her second bid for the House. Kat Kamick, you have just been elected to represent Florida's 3rd District in the 117th Congress, and at 32 years of age, will be the youngest Republican woman in the House of Representatives. When did you say, I want to do this? You know, I had I, I, I had no plans originally to be involved in politics. It, it really wasn't my life plan. But I think growing up the daughter of a single mother and, you know, growing up in a construction type household, um, I'm a third generation commercial sandblaster and I grew up on a small cattle ranch. You know, we um, had a unique upbringing and I kind of was exposed to how government and and Main Street interacted and and really kind of grew up understanding that it didn't work. Uh, really in the way that it would help small businesses or single parents and, and, you know, working class families. And it really came to a head in April of 2011 when uh, we lost our small cattle ranch. And it was due to uh, a big government one-size-fits-all program called the HAMP program. And that was the moment when we found ourselves homeless that I had a choice to make. I could rebuild my life and get back on my life plan and take over the family business, or I could fight back. And I made a choice at that point in time that I was going to do everything that I possibly could so that no family ever had to go through what we went through and losing everything. And that was really the impetus for me getting involved. And since then, that's been my my mission and my motivation. Did your mom also become political by the experience? No, you know, my mom, uh, I was uh, actually raised in in a Democrat household, Um, but my mom, the way she raised me when it came to politics was you vote for the person, not for the party. And uh, so it was it was a pretty, um, you know, I I would say average engagement in politics. You know, we never went to any meetings or political rallies or gatherings or anything. And um, I think to this day, she still um, shakes her head a little bit when she sees her daughter uh, so actively involved in politics. Politics, but um, the thing that she did teach me was politics will impact you whether you're involved or not. And so, you know, just approach it with people in mind first rather than party. What do you want to accomplish? Oof. So I think I think um, women, by their very nature, you know, we have lists of things that we always want to to tackle. We're great multitaskers, uh, but things that I am very passionate about are um, very narrow. Uh, rural broadband being one of them. In my district, we have a tremendous need for connectivity, and I think that there's millions of Americans across this country, especially under COVID, who saw just how necessary uh, reliable high-speed internet connection is, whether it be for commerce, whether it be for healthcare, whether it be for education. Now that there are so many children across this country um, being homeschooled and you know really doing the virtual schooling, it's critical more than ever. So I want to create the blueprint 
on how we can deliver on rural broadband across America. That is definitely my first and foremost priority for my district. I want to show our viewers a clip from your victory speech on, on election night. Just a brief one, just to give people a flavor of your campaign. Let's watch. I'm so excited because not only will we be representing the fighting third, Florida's third congressional district, as the youngest woman in the country, in the Republican Party, but we get the opportunity to represent conservative millennials, Gen Zs, women, and people of all backgrounds across this country and across this state. And I am going to work every single day. You thought we worked hard in this campaign, we're gonna take it up a notch. We're gonna work so hard every day to prove that we are a country worth saving and we are a district that is not for sale. You are a veteran of uh, several political campaigns. What was it like campaigning during a pandemic year? You know, it was interesting, to say the least. Uh, it definitely presented its own set of challenges, but I see a challenge really as an opportunity uh, to innovate, get creative, and overcome. And a lot of my background has been about overcoming and having that grit to succeed despite all odds. So when COVID hit, our campaign really was just getting ramped up and being a young campaigner, being uh, the leader of a young campaign team, we had uh, the ability to take our infrastructure and make it go digital pretty rapidly. So within 48 hours, we had everything on a digital platform and we changed our entire grassroots strategy to grassroots in the digital realm. And so that was, like I said, a, a unique challenge for us, but uh, it was exciting to get creative in how can you reach people in new ways um, in, in light of everything that was going on. And so uh, I like to say that, you know, even though I came out of a 10-way primary um, and there was a lot of money that was being spent in this race, we really kept it in a personal one-on-one -on -one, uh, capacity in reaching people at their homes in ways that mattered and made sense to them. How so you, uh, I think it presented a good opportunity for us to get creative and, and really elevate the next game of, of campaign tactics and strategy. Well, how do you plan to use social media as a member of Congress? You know, I think I'm demonstrating that um, right now. Uh, I actually have been giving a behind the scenes look of freshman orientation. The last several weeks we've been in Washington, as you can see, I'm right now in the Library of Congress and one of my favorite places in Washington. And uh, we have made a point of really wanting to show our constituents and supporters all across the country what it is like to be a member of Congress. I hope that when people turn on their their uh, social media pages, whether it be Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, they're learning something and maybe inspiring them, hey, I could do that, or I would like to get involved, or I would like to learn more. It is our duty to really inspire that next generation to get involved. And now we have a seat at the table as a millennial that's so important. And so as we've been going through this orientation process, whether it be in an ethics training or a, a briefing about committees or something as simple as, hey, I'm walking through Statuary Hall or I'm in the Library of Congress, I'm taking my constituents on this journey with me because I think it adds that element of accountability and transparency so they know me as a person, but they also know what I'm doing up here on their behalf. And social media is gonna be a, a top priority for me as we roll out all of our initiatives. 
you came to Congress as a former congressional staffer, uh, so you're very familiar with that building. Can you describe the difference of walking in there for the first time, wearing your congressional Repelect pin, and knowing that you, in fact, have been elected to serve? It hasn't hit me yet. Um, the the feeling when you look up at the Capitol Dome or you see the the, the Jefferson Building you get the butterflies. And I got those butterflies as a staffer just because of, of the gravity and, and the historical nature of, of the buildings that we have the, the honor and privilege to walk in. Uh, today, when I was walking into the Library of Congress, there were four Capitol Police officers. And um, we, we walked in and they said, oh, you're the new member from Florida. We've been seeing you on TV. And as I shook their hands, it was just the most amazing feeling of, you know, getting to know the people that make up these institutions, that serve these institutions. And um, it, it is just the most amazing feeling, humbling and truly grateful for the opportunity. It hasn't set in completely yet. I find myself still pointing out bathrooms to members that are walking around lost, but <laughs> we're, we're having a good time. And, and I hope that I never lose that feeling of feeling small in these buildings. You described yourself uh, as a, on all your campaign and your, your uh, congressional materials as a constitutional conservative. Explain to me what that means to you. So for me, I, I honestly have, have always believed that when you take your oath um, and you're sworn in as a member or even as, as a congressional staffer, you take the oath uh, to the United States Constitution. You don't take an oath to a political party. And our constituents, in my case, about 710,000 of them, expect me to legislate from a constitutional basis in a way that is meaningful and productive for our country as a whole, not a party. So for me, as I cast these votes and, and having been through this process a little bit, you see a lot of programs that aren't constitutional, that aren't clearly defined as a responsibility or duty of the federal government. There's so many things that I think the states um, have responsibility for that we have basically taken over. And so when I'm casting my votes, I'm really casting it with the Constitution in mind, approaching it as a holistic document rather than a la carte. There's so many times where people want to forget you know, one amendment over another. And um, I think that that's going to be really my basis and my foundation as I legislate come January 2021. Where do you think that will place you within the Republican conference? Are you like-minded with most members or do you think that might, in fact, be a challenge from time to time? Well, I'm hoping that as everyone takes their oath to the United States Constitution, that they, they understand that we have a free constitutional republic. And uh, I, I know that there are some members of uh, the, the class um, going into the 117th Congress that are uh, what they call progressive, and they would like to see a more socialist um, form of government coming in that is less about serving the individual and, and the people and more about serving government. I tend to side with the American people and the working class. I think that government operates best when it is small and accountable and transparent. And people have the power to control that. I don't think that people should work to serve the government and build these big bureaucratic programs. So um, as far as where I find myself, I am a, a pretty conservative member, but I'm American first. So I will work with, with members and, and those that seek to make our country a better place and, and really preserve the concept of equal opportunity rather than equal outcome. Tell me a little bit about Florida 3 and what the 
challenges that your constituents face that they're hoping that you can help them with? So I love Florida's third congressional district. I call us the fighting third. We have uh, incredible grit in our district and it's it's unique in that we have uh, a university, a major university, University of Florida, go Gators. And so we represent the Gator Nation and the real swamp in North Central Florida. And with that comes a lot of incredible research, development, investment in that innovation and technology. Um, so we have that academia wing, but we also have incredible agriculture and, and rural areas that um, produce commodities and, and really feed our state and our country. It's really such a unique balance of things. You know, we've got equine, uh, the horse capital of the world is in our district, uh, incredible bass fishing on the St. John's River, the suburbs of Jacksonville. And the most important part is great people, just really, really warm, friendly, helpful people that uh, want to do well for themselves and their family and true patriots, honestly. Um, the top issues, though, uh, rural broadband, that hands down is our top priority. It's kind of crazy to me in uh, 2020 that not every American has access to internet. And it's some that have a little bit of access, but they're underserved or some that in fact have dial up, uh, dial up still. And you'll find that in my district in the sixties, we put a man on the moon. So you would think in 2020, we could get every American uh, hooked up to, to internet. So that is going to be huge for us because as we look at bringing in that infrastructure, that is what is going to help us take our education to the next level innovation, research, development, jobs. This is that critical infrastructure that really needs to be in place so that we can continue to grow and flourish and prosper. So rural broadband is huge. Fixing uh, healthcare, rebuilding after COVID is uh, tremendously important. I have a lot of small businesses that um, were affected tremendously as, as the rest of the country was with shutdowns. They've been extremely detrimental to our local economy, especially living in a university town. There's a lot of service oriented uh, companies and, and small businesses and having that experience of growing up in a small business. I know that there's a lot of life savings and a lot of work and time, blood, sweat and tears that has gone into these um, these operations. And so I'm going to do what I can to make sure that we save them. Your spouse, Matt Harrison, I understand, is a first responder in Gainesville. Well, what does he do? And my second question is, have the two of you figured out how you're going to approach the the challenge of of working in Washington and Gainesville at the same time? Uh, So my husband, Matt, is a firefighter and a SWAT medic for the city of Gainesville. And uh, his his call sign or his nickname is uh, Mr. Bean. So uh, if anybody ever comes across him, that's it's kind of funny. He does respond to that. Uh, He's been serving our community for about 14 years as a firefighter and uh, joined the SWAT team several years ago. So um, he I like to say that he is uh, the best thing that you can see. Um, and, and he responds to people on their worst days. So um, he's seen our communities at some of their toughest times, whether it be, um, you know, someone's home um, in, a, in a fire or um, someone in a terrible accident or in the case of Florida, you know, we have quite a few hurricanes. Um, he's been responding to those for several years. And so for me, it's important that we have uh, a servant's family and uh, together we have the Grit Foundation, which is a nonprofit that raises money for critical life-saving equipment for our first responders. And um, his work 
with the first responder community as a first responder. Um, I've been able to see firsthand where we have gaps and what we need to be doing to better support our first responders, both law enforcement and the fire department. We've seen a tremendous shift in communities, not just in our own home uh, hometown, but across the country where um, first responders are really under attack. Um, they're not receiving the necessary resources in order to do their jobs, which by extension keep our communities safe. And of course, there is a, the defund police movement, which is, I think, incredibly detrimental to um, our communities and, and the safety and well-being of our communities in a whole, as a whole. So I'm going to be very active in supporting that um, up here on Capitol Hill and making sure that our first responders and their families know that we've got their back. But um, as far as making the, the dynamic work, we actually received the uh, House session calendar yesterday um, for what days I'll be in Washington voting. And I'm, I have to say I'm quite disappointed. Um, we are actually, I think, setting a record for the least days of votes in the, uh, the year 2021. And I think that the American people uh, will be very disappointed when they see the lack of work that's being done up here by their representatives. So um, it keeps me back home. The session calendar that they propose will have me back home um, quite a bit, which of course I enjoy and, and want to be home. Um, but I also have a job to do and I want to make sure that we're doing that. So when he is off, um, the way that the, the first responder schedule works, you know, he works 24 hours and then he's off for 48. Um, whenever we can get a break like that, he'll join me up here in Washington as often as he can. And of course, I'll be home every weekend. And, and for every time that there's not a vote up here, I'll be back home. So uh, we don't have kids yet, just some chickens, ducks and, and a dog. So uh, we'll figure out the family dynamic as as we get further along. Yeah, all of which also need care along the way, don't they? Um, so yes. you've got a month to go until you're actually sworn in. So let me return to freshman orientation. We have a clip of, uh, you talked about how your, your cell phone was recording much of the process for folks back home, your constituents. Let's show people a little bit of what you captured in freshman orientation. Hey guys, it's Kat Kamak, your constitutional conservative representing Florida's third district. And I'm here with my friends. We got Beth from Texas, Byron, my buddy from Florida. We got Pat, we got Santos, we got the whole crew in the Got we got we got the Bach from Minnesota. Hey Andrew. Hey. Hey Georgia. Yeah, take it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> and we have just finished up our first presentation. It was about COVID in the workplace, and as you can see, we are already rebelling. What were you rebelling against? <laughs> Well, it's no secret that there's a bit of a debate nationally about the effectiveness of, of masks. And uh, so uh, there there was half of uh, our, our freshman orientation that was pro-mask and half that was uh, anti or for masks and some were against the mask. And, and so... Uh, we had just received a briefing talking about the uh, the effectiveness of masks and and the data was pretty dismal and so in, in a moment of rebellion we took our masks off in, in the break and um you know it's just a little bit of light-hearted fun as as we've been going through this you know the freshman orientation is is not exempt from some of the adjustments that you know we've had to make because of covid just as every other industry and in, in, has across the country so um there's some folks that feel much more comfortable wearing the masks and there's some that weren't and um that was our moment of rebellion so <laughs> 
So uh, <laughs> having gone th going through orientation and having been on Capitol Hill as a staff member, is there anything that you have learned as a member-elect that surprised you or pretty much know the whole routine? You know, I subscribe to the theory that you don't know what you don't know. So even though I have had experience up here um, as a congressional staffer, there's always things that you can learn. And, and really talking to folks that have been here for a long time, um, both staff and members, you, you realize that you could be here for decades and you still wouldn't know everything. There's a lot that there's uh, yet to learn. And um, I haven't really been um, surprised by much other than, um, unfortunately, the disorganization um, of, of uh, the, the majority's leadership. And that has been that has been really disappointing. The uh, like I said, the session calendar, I was very surprised that um, especially given the state that our country is in, um, how little time is going to be dedicated to actually governing and legislating and doing the things that we have been tasked with by our constituents. That's been very disappointing. Um, another thing that has been surprising to me is in our class, the 117th, um, both Republicans and Democrats, we have been getting along fabulously. And I think that that spirit of bipartisanship and common ground um, now that we're finding and, and seeing is something that we can translate into work. And so that has been a little bit surprising. You see how much uh, division is out there and that's played out in the mainstream media. But when we were in, in our orientation, even though you know we have some differences on policy and, and tactics and whatnot, we still are able to get along with our colleagues on the other side of the aisle, and I think that was surprisingly refreshing. Well, it sounds optimistic, but I watched one interview that you did, and you you said uh, to the interviewer, C-SPAN's going to look a little bit more like pay-per-view in the new Congress. What did you mean by that? <laughs> We're going to have some spirited debates, and, and you know what? I have been a C-SPAN fan for my entire life. Um, and of course, you know, watching the House floor, you can see some some pretty uh, lengthy debates that go back and forth. And um, sometimes there's not a whole lot of, of activity. But I know my colleagues in the 117th, we are anxious and ready to get to work. So you're going to see uh, you're going to see some very spirited debates about the future of our country on on the House floor. So C-SPAN will, I like to say, get a little bit sa uh, saucier, a little bit more spicy. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that. There, We didn't see it in that group of members, mostly men in that, just by chance, but there are 18 women in the GOP freshman class. I'm wondering if you see the possibility of uh, a, a subgroup of that forming the same kind of coalition as the squad, as they're known, the progressives in last time's freshman class, uh, and really uh, having making a name for yourself in policy and using social media. Do you see that developing in any way? You know, I do. I, I think that that's something that has to happen organically. It's nothing that can really be planned. I think when it comes across as, you know, very orchestrated and, and planned, it, it comes across as disingenuous. So I, I think that as we move through the process of getting through orientation and really getting to know each other, there's already a few members that, you know, we, we've gotten along really well and I think we'll be working on projects together. But um, that will happen uh, just naturally. I, I think that, you know, the way that the squad came together, there were, you know, four women that really um, found common ground in the issues that they were wanting to work on. They had a great friendship and it really bloomed from that. Um, I don't think they called themselves that. I think that name was given to them. 
And I think you'll see the same thing happening on our side, you know, with conservatives. It's it's not something that will come, you know, in a package uh, deal with a bow on it. I think it'll happen probably in the first uh, few months of uh, the 117. When will you find out your committee assignments? So um, the process of, of getting your committee assignments, we've been already meeting with uh, different members and, and the steering committee and, and, and folks that are on those committees right now and uh, making our case to getting on those. The, the issue is that um, Speaker Pelosi has not set the ratios. In fact, like I said, we just got the calendar, calendar yesterday and found out that we will be swearing in on the 3rd, which is a Sunday, which is um, unusual. Um, so a little bit of disorganization there, but we're, we're trying our best to be flexible. Um, we are told that we probably won't have our committee assignments until the, the second or third week of January, which is, again, unusual. Typically, you would know your committee assignments earlier than that. But um, we're waiting on Speaker Pelosi to uh, negotiate ratios with uh, Leader McCarthy. If you could have your pick, what would they be? Ag and Homeland. And why is that? So, you know, uh, both of those committees are incredibly important to my district and to the state. Um, also, I have tremendous experience with both of those. You know, I come from a district that is heavily agricultural and in the state of Florida, the number two driver of the economy is ag. Um, we have seen uh, a tremendous need for strong advocates for our farmers and ranchers and, our, and rural America. And I believe I would be a strong voice and I would be the only Republican uh, in the state of Florida to be on agriculture now that uh, Representative Yoho is um, leaving uh, Congress. And of course, Representative Dunn is making a jump to another committee. So that would, would be a hole that I would um, intend to fill. And with regard to homeland, uh, I think it is more critical than ever that we focus on protecting um, the, the homeland and you know really securing our borders, really putting Americans' uh, national security at the forefront and putting America first. Um, I received my master's degree from the United States Naval War College, and I think that in my time in, in that program, I learned how critical it is. And, and really, it's one of the few things that we are charged with in the Constitution as federal legislators. And so I think there's tremendous work that we have to do there. Of course, being a Florida member, uh, we are very used to seeing storms roll through, and that committee actually has jurisdiction over FEMA. And so I think there's some reforms that we could make um, that would better pr protect our infrastructure, our critical infrastructure, as we uh, move through uh, this next Congress. And so those two committees are really important to me, and that's what I'll be working towards over the next few weeks. Because it's an important moment in your personal political history, have you yet given thought to what your very first speech on the floor of the House will be about? I have a list of topics and ideas, but we haven't decided on it yet. <laughs> And, and give me a couple of the list of topics. What are the top one or two? You know, it could range um, anywhere from maybe something very specific about um, homeland security and um, critical infrastructure like rural broadband. It could be a little bit more um, philosophical in talking about the importance of protecting our free constitutional republic and, and really legislating from uh, the constitutional perspective. Um, it could be something dealing with human trafficking. That's an issue that I'm very passionate about. Um, we haven't decided yet. I think that um, it'll become clear as we get no, uh, closer to, to the date of when we swear in, but haven't had the opportunity to, to take that oath yet. So we're going we're gonna to be strategic and, and really wait and see what, 
what the feeling is as we get there. So we have about two minutes left. Uh, moving to national politics as we close, President Trump has indicated that he may announce a bid for re-election as soon as uh, inauguration week in January. Do you think ultimately that's a good thing for your party, for the country, um, or would you like to see a chance for a new generation of Republican leaders? You know, I've, I've been a vocal advocate and supporter of the president and remain that way to this day. I, I think that the president is exercising his right to explore all options. And, you know, we know his personality. He is a worker and a fighter. And I think at the end of the day, only he can make that decision. Um, there's no uh, amount of uh, supporters or advisors who can can change his mind or sway his his opinion. And I think that's what people appreciate most about him. So uh, that remains to be seen of if he's going to do that and and we'll we'll comment then. But you know, I think that that President Trump has been incredible for this country. He did exactly what he campaigned on, and it was a breath of fresh air. Um, seeing someone who was willing to um, put all things aside, all the politics aside, and really work to try to get things done in a meaningful way for our country. So um, I have been very, very happy with President Trump. As I said, he's still going through that process, and I stand by him in that process. Um, and as far as the future of the Republican Party, I would like us to really focus on the Constitution and providing opportunities for people to make choices for themselves and their families. That's what's important. And, and like I say, the future of the Republican Party should be simply put equal opportunity, not equal outcome. And that is what the future is going to look like for the conservative party moving forward. Representative-elect Kamek, a Republican of Florida, uh, the third district around Gainesville, the youngest woman in the 117th class of, in the Republican conference. Thank you for spending time introducing yourself to the C-SPAN audience. I'm sure they'll be seeing lots of you after January 3rd. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. Our race here in the 53rd district was about so much more than one person. It was about putting an end to the politics of toxicity and division. It was about showing that we don't have to settle for the way things have always been done. It was about sending a new generation of leaders to Congress who will do things differently and will listen to everyone and respect everyone and work across the aisle to actually get things done for families here in San Diego. Representative-elect Sarah Jacob, that's a clip from you on election night when you learned that you would become the youngest Democratic woman in the 117th Congress, representing California's 53rd. Has that fact sunk in for you yet? Uh, I'll be honest, it is a bit surreal. Um, in part because of COVID, we haven't gotten to do all of the pomp and circumstance that I think will make it really feel um, real. But I will say the first time I walked on the House floor as a member elect, as um, we were looking around and thinking about all of the people who have served in that room, all of the important decisions that have been made in that room, and really thinking about the fact that our country is in a hopefully once in a generation public health and economic crisis and that uh, our class and I have really been elected to be the ones to help us get out of it. Um, I feel the weight of that responsibility uh, really heavily. You'd made a bid for Congress two years earlier, uh, obviously unsuccessful. This time around, you won resoundingly against a Democratic opponent. What was the key to your victory this time, do you think? 
You know, we, from the very beginning of the primary, were very intentional about building a campaign that everyone could be a part of. And that was about building a broad coalition of people who knew that they wouldn't agree with me on every issue, but that I would always listen and I would always respect them. And that I fundamentally believe that you would rather have a representative that you trust than one that you agree with on every issue. Um, and so, you know, we were able to put together that coalition from across the political spectrum because of California's top two system. I was running against another Democrat. And so to win, I had to both win Democratic voters and win no party preference in Republican voters. And, you know, we were able to do that uh, with this message of listening and respecting. And that's exactly the approach I'll bring to governing. We've done some interviews with um, reform advocates who believe that California's system would, should be adopted more broadly, perhaps even nationally. What are the advantages and disadvantages of it? Uh, you know, this is my second time running in, in the top two primary system. I think um, that its intention was to make the process more democratic, small d, um, so that more people were able to have a say in who was representing them and not only the people who turn out in party primaries, which tends to be a smaller uh, selection of the electorate. Um, I will say I do think it was important that I had to win voters uh, who were not Democrats in order to get elected, I think that gives me a unique approach. But I also think that um, sometimes because there's so much fear about two of the same party making it through, you end up actually having more uh, of a say and more of a heavy hand by party structures um, than you otherwise would, which is exactly opposite the intention. One of our goals in talking with you is to let C-SPAN viewers who follow a lot of Congress know a little bit more about the members who will be coming in. So I want to spend a little bit of time on your life story. Every biography of you, of course, points out that you were the granddaughter of the founder of Qualcomm, Erwin Jacobs. So let's start there. What influence did your grandfather have on your life, uh, on your worldview? Yeah, I'm incredibly proud of everything that my grandfather has been able to do. And he always taught us that it was our unique responsibility to use the advantages and the responsibilities that we've been given in order to make sure that every family had access to the kinds of opportunities that our family had access to. You know, my, my family was at one point Jewish immigrants. My grandfather is the first in his family to go to college. Uh, he got his PhD and then worked at a public university, and in part because of that public investment in universities and the fact that he didn't graduate with student loan debt, he was able to start a business that has really revolutionized the way we communicate um, and, you know, frankly, has really built San Diego into um, the high-tech hub that it is. And, you know, I believe that it's my responsibility now to make sure that future generations, that my generation millennials who are saddled with trillions of dollars of student loan debt and two once in a lifetime, uh, once in a generation economic crises that we've already had to weather are able to you know, really live the same kind of American dream that my family had access to. So who or what along the way inspired you to turn towards Washington? Your route to Congress was through the policy arena. What started all that for you? Uh, you know, it, I had always been taught um, that 
I had to figure out where I could have the most impact and make the biggest difference for the most amount of people and the most vulnerable people. Um, and for a long time, I thought that was as a policy advisor, whether it was working at UNICEF um, on how we could better serve vulnerable children around the world, working at the UN in peacekeeping and at the State Department in conflict prevention and stabilization, really trying to to work on some of these really complex and seemingly intractable problems. Um, but after 2016, uh, when I was working on the uh, Clinton campaign as one of her uh, foreign policy advisors, um, after we lost, I, I realized that um, as much as I still prefer writing policy memos to giving press interviews, no offense, um, that uh, at the end of the day, everything I cared about was at risk here at home. And that many of the challenges that I was working on overseas were also happening here. And that I had to stop writing talking points for someone else to say, and I had to step out and start saying it myself. How would you describe your political philosophy? Uh, I consider myself a pragmatic progressive. I think we have to be talking about the huge challenges and problems that are facing our country that have been laid bare and exacerbated by COVID-19, but under no circumstances or under most circumstances were not created by COVID-19. You know, in San Diego County alone, uh, prior to COVID-19, we had about 40% of our kids who were living in families experiencing poverty. And to me, in one of the wealthiest counties in the wealthiest state in the wealthiest country that the world has ever known, that is simply unacceptable. Um, and I know that the only way to do big things and the only way to really move things forward is to build coalitions of people and to make sure you're bringing everyone along. And that's really how I approach governance and how I approach uh, what we're going through right now, that we, we have to be thinking about really big change that we need to make moving forward and the kinds of challenges we're going to be facing in the future. We can't settle for the way things have always been done and we can't just try and recreate uh, something that used to exist that doesn't anymore, um, but we have to do it by working across the aisle, by working um, with a wide variety of folks and really building that kind of coalition that makes these, change that makes these changes lasting. Well, two follow-ups on that. First of all, your own Democratic uh, caucus has uh, members from far left to the moderate and um, everywhere in between. Uh, many observers say it's going to be a challenge for the speaker to uh, form that into a successful governing coalition. Uh, where uh, do you see yourself building bridges with the other members of your caucus? Uh, look, in my uh, couple of weeks here as a member-elect, I have to say that I have been um, so enjoyed getting to know other members of my freshman Democratic class, other members of the Democratic caucus. And while I know people love to talk about what, uh, what differences there are in the caucus, I will say that we all agree on so much more than what we disagree on. And we all know that we're going to have to get relief to families and small businesses and assistance to those who need it most to make it through this difficult time that we're in right now. And I'm really looking forward to working with my colleagues to push that forward. Well, then moving to the other side of the aisle, conservatives raising a, a lot of uh, concern about the size of the debt how to spend money efficiently uh, uh, during the COVID crisis. Uh, where um, do you see that as an area of conflict or an area of possibility for finding consensus? 
you know, I think that um, even some of the Republican colleagues I've met from the freshman class understand that this is a unique time and that we're going to have to do a lot to make sure that our small businesses, um, that our economy really makes it through this time and is able to grow on the other side. Um, and I honestly think that we need to stop talking about this in terms of just um, broad numbers and really think about this as investments. Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, my grandfather is a business person. I think any business person will tell you that you have to take on some debt sometimes in order to make the kind of capital expenditure investments you need to grow in the future. And so what I'm really focused on is what we're spending money on. Can we put investments in early childhood education, in childcare, um, which we know pay, pay huge dividends down the road, um, make sure that we're putting in place the kinds of infrastructure and protections and investments we need to do right now so that our economy can grow and grow in an equitable way on the other side. In your uh, victory speech, you made reference to the, your generation, the millennials. And um, I looked it up yesterday. The average age of the members of the House is going to be about 58 years old. Again, we told folks you were 31 at the outset. Um, and in fact, there will be 31 millennial members of the 117th Congress what opportunities does the millennial class of Congress uh, present for the institution? Do you see the institution changing more because of your presence, or are you all changing because of all of the traditions of the Congress? You know, I think it's going to have to be a little bit of both. Uh, I'm already learning that uh, things here in Congress don't work quite as quickly as just, you know, clicking a button on an app and things happening. Um, but I really think that our generation um, can bring a unique approach. Many of us graduated into the Great Recession. We're now facing the second huge economic crisis in our adult lives. Um, we, as as everything is moving digitally because of COVID-19, I think we have an important voice to add on some of these questions around data privacy, around new technologies and what kinds of rules we can be putting in place. And of course, I'm of the generation that has never known a day in our adult lives that the United States hasn't been at war. I was in middle school when September 11th happened. And so I think the idea of ending the forever wars takes a special import for us because we know the, the costs that that has had on us here domestically and on our generation. And, you know, one of the things I really want to focus on is rebuilding America's standing around the world and making sure that we are ending the forever wars responsibly and that we're really thinking about how we can craft a foreign policy that will address the challenges in the future and um, that we're rebuilding for those future challenges, things like global pandemics, like climate change, um, so that we're really able to build a future for, for us, but, you know, also for our children. You know, we talk a lot about climate change uh, in our generation because I'd like to have kids one day and I'd like there to be a world that they can live in. Well, speaking of climate change, this morning, we're, uh, as we're taping this, woke up to the news that there's a, another Southern California wildfire, uh, one of many uh, very catastrophic fires this year. Uh, what do you think Congress can do about that situation? So the wildfires uh, have been incredibly uh, difficult to deal with this year. You know, when I was growing up in San Diego, 
fire season was October, maybe September, and now it feels like they are virtually year-round. So the most important thing we need to do uh, from Congress is actually address climate change because that is the central cause of why we're having so 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 much of an increase in the wildfire threat in California. Um, also, most of the um, forest forest land in California is actually managed by the federal government. So making sure we're making those investments that we need to uh, proactively uh, address fire threat. Um, and then really also making sure that we are protecting and um, fully funding our firefighters, that they have the resources that they need, that we are uh, addressing the fact that firefighters have a rate of suicide much higher than the uh, general population, that, um, you know, Firefighters often have a lot of health threats because of the risk they put themselves in addressing these fires. Uh, and right now, especially as we know that state and local governments are really feeling these budget crunches, that the federal government is providing that support so that we can make sure our first responders are still getting paid and still getting paid what they deserve doing these incredibly important jobs. While we're talking about California issue, your district particularly has a really big naval presence. Uh, I'm wondering... Um, if how you specifically would like to serve that constituency, and more specifically, if you could be responsible for a change for military families or veterans, what would it be? Um, it's uh, an incredibly important issue for my district. I'm hoping to serve on the House Armed Services Committee so that I can make sure that our district and our region uh, is is represented in that area. My predecessor, Congresswoman Susan Davis, had really um, been a leader on that committee. And there's a lot we need to do. Um, but one of the most important things that I think we'll need to do is really invest in our military families. Uh, in San Diego County alone, prior to COVID-19, we had about 39,000 members of military families who visited the food bank every single month. Um, and when I talk to military families, one of the things I hear most often is the need for childcare. Um, I think that making sure we're addressing our military families' childcare needs is important for them, but it's also important for our readiness as a force. And I'm hoping I can work on that issue on the Armed Services Committee and also that as we're putting in place those protections and investments in childcare for our military families, we're actually learning how we can extend um, affordable universal childcare to all families in our country because we know how important that is for an equitable recovery. Also very important to San Diego and California are immigration issues. Uh, that is on a short list for incoming President Biden. What would you like to see change with regard to immigration policy? Yes, we in San Diego really feel the brokenness of our immigration system very deeply. Um, and we also know very personally the uh, amazing contributions that immigrants make to our community. Uh, we have about $5 million that we lost in the few hours that President Trump closed San Ysidro Port uh, when he was trying to make a point about uh, immigration. Um, you know, that's, that's a huge impact on our regional economy. And so I think we need a comprehensive approach to addressing this. I think, first of all, we need to make sure we are uh, putting in place a, a clean dream act so that uh, young people who are here are able to stay here and able to build their lives and know that there's not this sense of uncertainty on the other side. Uh, and then that we need to make sure we're keeping families together and that our economy has the kinds of workers that we need uh, without allowing businesses to use those 
uh, visa laws to underpay workers. Um, and, you know, I think obviously my district is very close to the border. We do need uh, border security, but I, I know that there's a humane way to enforce our immigration laws. President Trump campaigned on and spoke often and did uh, a lot of work on a border wall. Do you think border wall is a successful policy for the United States? I think it's clear that uh, the border wall that President Trump was trying to create um, has not uh, been an effective strategy. I will say in California, we do have some uh, similar assets um, that were put in place by President Bill Clinton in the 1990s. Um, but I think that as you look at what we need to, to do on immigration, um, it's clear that that physical infrastructure is not necessarily what we're missing. What we need is a focus on narco and human trafficking. Um, we need to make sure that we are welcoming refugees and asylum seekers who uh, want to come to the United States um, to really protect themselves and to help us build our country. Um, you know, we in San Diego have been really affected by the Remain in Mexico policy and by um, of the asylum metering that has happened um, because we we are a close region with Tijuana, and um, we see the detrimental impact that that has. And so, fixing a lot of the most horrific parts of the Trump administration's legacy on immigration, I think, will be uh, really important. We're talking to you in Washington, but San Diego is 3,000 mile commute away. Have you decided or figured out how you're going to manage your long distance district? Um, it's definitely interesting to be a, a member from California. A lot of the advice they've been giving us in uh, new member orientation doesn't necessarily apply for us with districts that are so far away. Um, but I plan on being back and forth very often. Um, this is one of the areas where I think my youth might be an advantage, a um, little bit less of wear and tear on the body. Um, but also my background is in foreign policy. And so um, I used to have to be on airplanes quite frequently, um, going uh, really long distances to do my work. And so um, I think it's something I'll be, I'll be able to adjust to uh, pretty quickly. During orientation, you were unanimously elected by your classmates as the freshman representative to the House Democratic Steering and Policy Committee. What does that mean? What will you be doing there? So the House Democratic Steering and Policy Committee is the committee within the Democratic Caucus that works on committee assignments and the broad policy priorities for the caucus, um, right? We just finished doing um, committee chair races, which the steering committee plays an important role in. And next we'll be working on committee assignments. And my primary goal will be making sure that my fellow freshman Democrats who are incredibly inspiring and thoughtful people are in uh, positions where they can have a real impact for our country and for their districts. Uh, you mentioned that armed services was a priority for you because of the naval military presence in your district. What else would you like as a committee assignment? I'd really like to serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, that's my background. And also, I think one of the really big challenges that we're going to be faced um, with a new president as we work to rebuild America's standing around the world. When will you know when you, I mean, you've got an a, a inside view because you're on the committee, but when will you know that you've uh, achieved the committees you wanted or not? I'm hoping we'll be able to get our committee assignments by swearing in, but in years past, it sometimes extends into the, the first month of the new Congress. 
the the 117th Congress will have at least 121 women. There's a couple races still to be resolved. Uh, does gender matter when it comes to Congress? Will the presence of so many women have any effect on the legislative output? Absolutely. Um, I think that we, because of our experiences, bring a different perspective around the table. Um, for instance, I know how important childcare will be to an equitable recovery because I've talked to so many of my friends and so many of my constituents who, many women, but not necessarily only women, who will not be able to return to the workforce until we figure out how we can address this childcare crisis that our country faces. Um, I think when you look at healthcare, reproductive healthcare is my primary healthcare. And so making sure that that is part of any conversation of healthcare and, you know, as a young woman, I didn't need the Me Too movement to know that sexual harassment in the workplace was a problem because I've experienced it. And I think the more um, perspectives that we have, the more things like that will be brought to the table, that everyone brings their own lived experience. And while we do need the lived experience of, of everyone right now, just a certain perspective is overrepresented. And so making sure that we do have more people around the table who can really make sure we're addressing all of the challenges that our country and our constituents are facing will be really important. How important is it to the California delegation that the Speaker of the House is from your state? And second question is, did you know Nancy Pelosi before you were uh, uh, elected uh, this time around? Well, we're very proud that we get to claim Speaker Nancy Pelosi as one of our uh, delegation. I think she is uh, exactly the person we need leading our caucus through uh, this difficult time. And I'm really proud that one of my first votes in Congress will be uh, to vote for her as Speaker. Um, I uh, have, uh, I had known um, the Speaker previously. She uh, is an amazing mentor to many young women, and I uh, have been really grateful for all of her advice and guidance over the years. Give our viewers, again, who watch Congress so uh, so much more than the average person, a, a sense of what the last couple of weeks has been like for you. How busy are your days? Uh, uh, what kinds of things are you learning as a representative-elect? Well, they've been very busy. Um, I will say uh, I'm told that our orientation is, is very different from years past because of COVID-19. Um, we haven't uh, done a lot of the more ceremonial pieces that, um, as I mentioned, I think are really going to, to make all of this sink in. Um, new member orientation is a very weird mix of the very big um, going on the House floor for the first time, really understanding the kinds of decisions that we're going to be asked to make very quickly in the new term and the very mundane uh, tasks of just starting a new job and filling out a lot of paperwork and understanding how you set up the uh, phone system in your new office and, and things like that. Um, so we've been we've been doing all of that, um, have gotten our briefings on House ethics, on, on all the different policies that we now have to um you know, be up, uh, uphold uh, how we set up our office, really thinking through the most strategic way to do hiring. Um, and uh, then also, as I mentioned, getting to go on the House floor for the first time as a member-elect, learning how to vote, getting our official portrait taken, frank, uh, doing our franking signature. And so it's really been a, a whirlwind of a couple of weeks. Um, but I will say my favorite part 
has been getting to know all of my fellow freshmen and all of the other members. And I'm really excited to be joining them as a colleague very soon here. Have you uh, found one or two that you might even share a name with that you see that I can work with that person, perhaps on the other side of the aisle? There aren't that many Sarahs in Congress, um, but um, I have uh, gotten to know um, many uh, folks in both uh, my Democratic freshman class and the Republican uh, freshman class, and I think that we're going to have a lot that we're able to work on together. Okay, we'll leave it at that. Um, we're speaking about one month before the opening day of Congress. What does that one month look like for you? How will you be spending the next couple of weeks? Uh, and literally, how many hours a day are you spending at work right now? Oh, goodness. Well, um, I'm always working. Um, I sleep sometimes. Um, I, uh, but, you know, honestly, as a millennial, I think that's how many of us engage with uh, the workforce. Uh, my next uh, couple of weeks are going to be really focused on hiring my team, um, getting my uh, district office set up, making sure that uh, as soon as January 3rd comes, we will be able to really uh, hit the ground running and make sure that there's no break in representation or constituent services for our district. I'm very lucky that my predecessor is an amazing mentor of mine and has been incredible through this transition and her and her team are really making sure we have what we need to be successful. And I'm very excited to be getting back to my district, um, not only because um, it's December in Washington, D.C., and I'm very cold as a San Diegan, um, but because, um, you know, I really want to make sure that we are meeting with all of the community groups in there and that everyone there uh, knows what I'll be prioritizing uh, in the first uh, part of the new Congress and that we're uh, getting feedback and really starting to build that relationship will need to be successful moving forward. So if we have the opportunity, it's the final question for you because we're out, almost out of time, but if we have the opportunity yep. to talk with you one year from right now, when you're finishing up your first year in the House of Representatives, what will you most have liked to have accomplished? Universal affordable child care. Um, I think that it's important for our families to make it through this time. It's important for our uh, children to get quality early childhood education that we know pays huge dividends in their ability to be successful uh, in the future. And uh, most small, uh, most child care providers are small businesses that are run by women and, and predominantly women of color. And so making sure we're investing in our small business, our child care infrastructure, and that we're making sure that those child care jobs are good paying jobs will be an important component of any equitable recovery. Representative Alexa Sarah Jacobs of California, 31, who will be part of the millennial class in the new Congress and the youngest woman in the House of Representatives in the incoming class. Thank you for spending time with C-SPAN. Of course, great to be here. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email at podcasts at c-span.org with your questions, comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.